This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Colorado's Republicans have chosen Daryl Glenn as their candidate for U.S. Senate. He hopes to unseat incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett in November. Glenn was the only candidate to get on the GOP primary ballot through the caucus assembly process, as opposed to gathering signatures and petitioning on. He has earned the backing of many prominent Republicans, including former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin and Texas Senator Ted Cruz. Glenn spoke with me last night from his victory party at the Broadmoor Hotel in Colorado Springs. Daryl Glenn, congratulations and welcome to the program. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. You want to be a member of one of the most powerful bodies in the world, the U.S. Senate, which has a hand in, of course, domestic and foreign policy. What's the single most important thing you think qualifies you for the job? Well, for me, it's about leadership. The one thing about leadership is recognition in the fact that you have to spend time getting out there talking to people because I can tell you universally what I heard across the state. It doesn't matter if you're a Republican, Democrat, or unaffiliated. They're frustrated in the fact that they don't feel like their elected representatives are actually listening to them. And that's the one quality that I bring to this race. And what about your background makes you good at that? Well, I grew up in a military family. I'm an Air Force Academy graduate, a retired lieutenant colonel with 21 years in the military. I'm a small business owner. Uh, I, I'm a father of two adult children. Plus, uh, you know, I'm a city, I've been a city council member for eight years, and now I'm a county commissioner. So I bring a broad spectrum of experience. But the one thing I have is a servant's heart, somebody that's willing to go out there and actually sit down and talk to people and find out what the issues are, and that's what separates me from Mr. Bennett. Uh, Mr. Bennett has held any number of town hall forums in the state. Um, what makes you think he isn't listening to the people of Colorado? Well, the people that I've talked to have not seen Mr. Bennett. But the one thing they are going to do is they're going to see me. Uh, I'm going to go out there and talk to people. I'm going to go out there and make sure that they understand that their voice has been heard. So when they think about how angry they are about the Iran nuclear deal, how angry they are about Obamacare, how angry they are about the excessive regulations that are forcing them to lose their jobs and adjust their quality of life, I'm going to be the one that's going to be out there championing and fighting for them. We will dive into some of those issues in just a bit. But, uh, Daryl Glenn, you've called yourself a, quote, unapologetic Christian, constitutional conservative, pro-life, Second Amendment-loving American. And moving into this general election, where you'll be looking to court unaffiliated voters, the largest voting bloc in the state, will you add other descriptions that might broaden your appeal? Well, what that does, that that actually encompasses everything that uh, unaffiliated and Democrats and Republicans should be united about. Because why I say that is because I'm exercising my First Amendment right. And that's the one thing that this administration and Mr. Bennett has basically has suppressed. We have a First Amendment right, and we should be proud to be Americans. We should be proud to be able to be bold and brave and proudly proclaim who and what we are. It doesn't mean that we're asking anybody uh, to do that or adopt our beliefs or be exclusionary. It's recognition in the fact that we live in the greatest country, and this country is, uh, is great for Republicans, Democrats, and unaffiliates, and we can come together and be Coloradans. Well, I, I hear a lot of um, what sound like campaign slogans and um, you, you know terms like uh, the First Amendment and things like that, but I, I'm not getting out of that how you appeal to a moderate voter in Colorado. 
Well, I, I believe all parties, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a strong conservative, uh, you know, or moderate, whatever. Every single one of us want to make sure that we live in a country that's safe. Every single one of us want to make sure that we have energy independence so that we don't have to rely on enemies of this country to be able to do that. Every single one of us understand fiscal responsibility. We recognize the fact that we can't spend more money than what we have coming in. So these are issues that transcend party, and that's something that we're going to continue to do. And unfortunately, the policies that Michael Bennett has supported are in direct contradiction to that. At that point, Glenn had to rush off. He was surrounded by other reporters. But we were able to pick up the conversation by phone earlier this morning. You have endorsed Donald Trump, and I'd like to get to some of Trump's marquee stances, which would likely involve the U.S. Senate. So first off, do you support building a wall, more of one, along the U.S.-Mexico border and having Mexico pay for it? Well, it's one of these things where, you know, Donald Trump, he has his vision. And what I want to do is make sure people understand he has a vision, but the role of the Senate and the role of of the House they, they need to understand that the separate but equal branch of government, and that's what I haven't seen as far as leadership being able to work together on these issues. My focus is, just like I stated with our number one objective here from Colorado, is the defense of this country. And we need to be able to identify the enemy and do what's necessary to make sure that we secure the borders and be able to come up with a plan for radical Islamic terrorism. That might be looking at some improvements along our border, but we first have to identify the enemy and then come up with a strategy working with whoever is going to be president on how to accomplish that objective. That does so not sound Trump's that does not sound policy. like an open embrace of Trump's wall policy. Well, I think you're putting words in my mouth. What it says is that we're a separate but equal branch. You have to have a discussion. Your commander in chief, your president has to have a vision. But when you have that vision, you also need to work collaboratively with Congress to come up with how do we actually execute that. We do need some border and port security, but it's about us standing together. It's about Congress stepping up and doing their job for once. Do you think that there should be a temporary ban on Muslim immigration to this country? What I'm concerned about, we have to be able to identify threats to our country. And because right now we have not been able to secure our borders, there are people that are coming into our country that are potentially wanting to do us harm. We have to be able to come up with a way to identify those people and to make sure that we prevent that. That should be the focus. And should that system uh, rely solely on someone's faith as a screen? Well, what I think is you need to identify what are the threats. And that's really more behavioral that you need to be able to identify, because think about it from a practical standpoint. If your enemy knows what your rules of engagement are, your enemy is going to be smart enough to be able to adapt. What we need to do is identify criteria that we can clearly identify people that are threats to this country, come up with a strategy for dealing with that. But we certainly should not forecast those rules of engagement, because once your enemy knows what those are, they will exploit those. So we have to be very careful with doing that, but we must be diligent and realize that there is a real threat to this country. So you say that it ought to be based more on behavior than solely on someone's faith. Do you break then from Trump on the question of a temporary ban on Muslim immigration? Well, I know you want to keep going there, but like I said, I stand by my statement in the fact that he has his policy. The way I look at it as far as being able to work collaboratively with that 
I understand that there are threats to this country, and we have to be able to identify, come up with a criteria. And that criteria is yet to be determined on how we absolutely identify those people so that we can prevent those threats from happening. I guess what I don't understand is that you've endorsed Trump and you'll be down ballot uh, from him, uh, presumably. He's the presumptive nominee. Uh, Yes, I I do want to go there. In other words, I I want to know where you stand on his specific policy issues. Um, I'm I'm wondering why you're reluctant to go there. I'm not. I have my own agenda as far as I'm doing my job as far as leading. And we can keep doing this all day. But I'm going to stand by my statement in the fact that he has this platform that he needs to run on. When you are running as a senator or a congressman, you realize as Congress you have a separate but equal branch. Both branches working collaboratively need to come up with a strategy. And my strategy, I've already articulated that. I'd like to ask about the no-fly, no-buy proposal, the idea that if your name appears on the no-fly list, you shouldn't be able to buy a firearm. Uh, This is obviously in the news after the Pulse Orlando shooting Um, Just yesterday in Denver, there was a gunman who walked into an office building. What do you think of No Fly, No Buy, uh, just fundamentally as an idea? Well, fundamentally, I've yet to see a list that is essentially has captured people that are threats to this country. One of the things I'm concerned about are the due process rights for any and all individuals. It doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, Republican, or unaffiliated. It doesn't matter if you support the Second Amendment or not. When you start thinking about being an American and having your due process rights and having somebody limit access to normal things that you should be entitled to, that's very troubling if you don't have the ability to have your day in court, for lack of a better way of saying that. So I'm very leery, because I don't think one exists, that there's a foolproof system that allows people to be able to object to the fact that if they're placed on a list, not on their own volition, that they can actually get, get off of it. There are members of Congress that are on this list. So I really question that. We need to be very careful not to infringe upon our freedoms and liberties. What members of Congress are on the list? There have been people that have stated that there are members of Congress even on the no-fly list. And I think that should be investigated. All right. That is something that we'll do. Um, So what I hear you saying earlier is that you'd like some way to screen people who are dangerous from coming into the country. Uh, And then at the same time, the country has a list of people that it uh, is suspicious of and could be threats, but that you don't trust that list. Um, Is there a a contradiction perhaps in in that? No, there isn't, because that list is showing that it's not an accurate list. If the list, uh, if you had more faith in the list, would you uh, buy into the idea of no fly, no buy? Well, the one thing I don't do is deal in hypotheticals. So present me a list and prove to me that it actually works and it respects the due process rights, and then I'll be able to properly evaluate that. Uh, On your website, you say comprehensive tax reform is the key to economic and job growth. Would you explain just briefly what um, your view of of tax reform looks like, Daryl Glenn? Sure. I think that right now, our current tax code, we need to have a philosophical discussion behind the purpose of that. Because in my opinion, it's a wealth redistribution system. It's designed to take money from one individual, one company, and give it to somebody else. What I think we need to do is really take a hard look at our core function of government and really make sure that the federal government is being very is lean and efficient and is funding those core principles. 
And then you need to come up with a tax philosophy that's simplified, something that's easy for people to understand, that allows people to contribute their fair share. And in my opinion, probably a flat tax rate is something that we should look at. But that should be it. So it allows people to retain more of their dollars to be able to invest in their own economic prosperity. So we need to take a look at that from an individual standpoint. We also need to take a look at it when we start looking at our corporations. We need to have conversations with small business owners and corporations and find out what are those regulations that are are hampering your ability to hire and retain people. Why is it that manufacturing jobs are leaving this country? Is there something in our tax policy that's encouraging that to happen? If we make some modest changes, would that stop that migration overseas and will we be able to retain those jobs? Earlier, you mentioned energy independence um, in our conversation that began last night. Um, I want to dig deeper into that. You've also said elsewhere that Democrats have declared a war on the coal industry. Why shouldn't the U.S. move away from a source of energy that releases carbon, um, pollutes the air, has to be mined? Why shouldn't the U.S. move away from coal? Well, I think that it's something that we need to look at because there have been some technological advances with using cleaner coal. But what we need to do is have a balanced portfolio. We need to look at all energy options. What I don't support are subsidies putting one energy source over another. But what I do believe is we need a firm commitment into becoming energy independent. But we also need to look at the unintended consequences of some of our policies because if some of our policies are essentially causing us economic harm by way of job losses and shutting down livelihoods for individuals, we need to make sure that we properly evaluate the balancing aspect of the impacts of those policies versus what are we able to do to substantively change some of the things within the environment. There have been traditionally subsidies for fossil fuels. Would you remove those? I think that we need to get to a point where we do not have subsidies. That's really the goal it should be. Uh, To get you on the record, you do not agree with the majority of scientists who say climate change has human causes. Is that correct? Well, that's your assumption. You're bringing an assumption to the table, and and the premise to your question has me to basically uh, adopt your position, and I can't do that without verifiable data. Uh, Oh, it's not my position. Uh, It's that the the majority of scientists believe that climate change has a human-caused component. Do you um, concur with them? Again, you are bringing facts to the particular issue that I have have been presented to me. You're saying that the majority of scientists are saying that. That's your statement. Right. Well, that's a fact. Is it a fact you agree with? Well, that's the fact that you're representing, and I don't accept your premise of that question. Do you believe that climate change has human causes? Well, again, I'm a data guy. I want to see the verifiable information of that. There's a lot out there. Um, you, have you looked at it? We've looked at a lot of things. We've also looked at that, and we've also looked at the economic impact of those policies and, and how they are disproportionately hurting people when it comes to their livelihood. So that's really where the focus is. We need to make sure that when we're looking at policies like that, that we're looking at both sides of the equation instead of just one. And unfortunately, I got to head into another interview, but I really appreciate this opportunity, and I look forward to talking to you again in the future. Thanks for your time. El Paso County Commissioner Daryl Glenn got the Republican nomination in Colorado's U.S. Senate race. To his claim that members of Congress have been on the no-fly list, 
McClatchy newspapers reported last year that Representative Tom McClintock, a California Republican, said he was on the list years prior when he was a state senator. He said it was a case of mistaken identity with an Irish Republican army activist. Meanwhile, CNN reported back in 04 that Democratic Congressman John Lewis and the now late Senator Ted Kennedy were on an airline watch list. Representative Lewis led the recent sit-in over gun control on the House floor. One last note, we have requested an interview with incumbent Senator Michael Bennett post-primary and await his response. The program continues after a break on Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Now let's put Colorado's U.S. Senate race into national context. It'll be one of the most closely watched in the country. Jennifer Duffy is senior editor at Cook Political Report. That's a nonpartisan newsletter that analyzes political races and trends and predicts electoral outcomes. Duffy says she doesn't think she's called a Colorado Senate or governor's race wrong in 28 years on the job. And Jennifer, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Before the break, we heard from Daryl Glenn, who clinched the Republican nomination in the U.S. Senate race in Colorado yesterday. Uh, what are his biggest strengths and weaknesses as a candidate this year? Well, I, one of, um, I think, his biggest strengths is he is something rare in the Republican Party, which is an African-American Senate nominee. Um, you know, there aren't too many. There is a single African-American Republican that sits in the Senate. Um, that's Tim Scott of South Carolina. Um, you know, he certainly won the hearts of party conservatives and that helped him win this primary, but he's got a really steep head, uh, hill ahead of him from here on out. A steep hill. And we'll dig into the details of that in a moment. I want to read you something that was in the Washington Post just this morning. Quote that Daryl Glenn is the candidate Senate Republican operatives really, really didn't want. Uh, the story said that he's a hardline conservative, a Tea Party favorite, picked up endorsements, as we have said, from Ted Cruz and Sarah Palin. Um, do you think him being the nominee makes it harder for Republicans to win this seat? Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I am downgrading the rating of this race this week as a result of of Glenn being the nominee. Downgrading it. Say more about what that means. Yes. Well, what that means is I am saying that it is going to be a less competitive general election than it would have been, say, if a Jack Graham um, had won the, the nomination. Um, I don't see where Glenn grows his his level of support. In your interview with him, you talked or you tried anyway to talk to him about appealing to unaffiliated voters and he didn't really give you a good answer on that um, and how he broadens his base uh, because I'm not sure that he even appreciates the need to broaden his base, but it's it's pretty significant. What are the other headwinds? Uh, as you see it? Well, I think the other headwinds are uh, money. Um, Senator Bennett is very well funded. Uh, you know, right before the primary, they had to file reports with the Federal Election Commission. Um, Senator Bennett had about $7.2 million in the bank, and uh, Glenn had about $50,000 in the bank. Um, that is, that is uh, a huge difference. I don't know how Glenn raises the money to be competitive 
um, against the kind of campaign that Bennett will run against him. Um, the second factor, and this is a big one, um, is Trump. Um, I heard in your interview, you asked him a lot of um, questions about Trump that he that he really didn't answer. Um, but, you know, Clinton is ahead in Colorado. In As far as the presidential race, we have Colorado leaning in Democrats' favor. Um, I think it's going to bring out voters who are coming to vote, um, even not so much for Clinton, but against Trump on issues like immigration. Um, and I don't see Glenn being able to convince these voters to split their tickets because he cannot clearly outline the differences he has with Trump. I mean, he he talked a lot, <laughs> but he didn't really give you an answer. I don't think any voter will walk away from that answer feeling that there is a clear difference between these two candidates. Let's uh, take apart some of what you've said there. So let's talk first about money. You would expect that it would be lopsided between Bennett and Glenn at this point because this is the beginning of the general. Uh, so won't money flow to this race? Outside money, inside money? Um, for, I mean, first of all, he's he's got to raise some. And what is his fundraising base beyond what he had in the primary? Um, it's not that clear that, that there's going to be, you know, that he can expand it. You know, he wasn't, he doesn't have a business background or he doesn't have a big network of donors. As far as outside money goes, you know, the only ads in this race for him were paid for by somebody else. They were paid for by a group called the Senate Conservatives Fund, um, which backs Tea Party candidates. Um, and by the way, does not have a great track record in general elections. Um, my understanding of their financial situation is they don't have the millions of dollars it would take um, to give Glenn some sort of parity on the air. I don't think you're going to see a lot more outside money come into this race. I would be very surprised um, if you if you see any more outside money. I don't think you'll see the Chamber of Commerce, for example. Um, I, I'm not even convinced you'll see money from the National Republican Party. Is that a surprise? Not especially. I mean, I think that National Republicans understood that in this primary field, there were really only one or two candidates they thought um, had this sort of stature and, and experience in the campaign team to take Bennett on, and they didn't get either of those candidates. So we have talked a lot about Daryl Glenn. I'd like to focus on the strengths and weaknesses of Michael Bennett as the incumbent in this race. What would you point to as his vulnerabilities, first off? Well, I, I think it's never easy to be an incumbent in a swing state like Colorado. Um, you know, he barely won this race in 2010 against a very flawed Republican nominee. Um, but it was also a very, very good year for Republicans. I mean, he was one of the few Democratic, you know, positive storylines out of election night 2010. But the, the, the tables are turned this time. This is going to be a much better year for Democrats overall, um, partly because 
of the Republican nominee, Donald Trump, and partly just because of what presidential turnout looks like. It's very different from a mid middle, you know, a midterm turnout. Voters tend to be younger, more minority, um, you know, a little bit less educated, um, which (laughs) does not have anything to do with whether they vote for Democrats or not. But it's a much broader electorate um, that favors Democrats more than Republicans. One of the major issues in the Republican Senate primary was Bennett's vote for the Iran nuclear deal. And it's this very specific thing on the record that Daryl Glenn can point to. Um, Is that another of Bennett's vulnerabilities, do you think? Well, I think that there are some – a couple of things in his his, uh, record that Republicans can – sort of mine. That is one of them, his his sentiment on, on the Iran deal, um, which is not entirely popular with the electorate. The other is his belief that um, Guantanamo Bay should be closed and what should happen um, with those, those prisoners there. Um, Bennett seems to want the best of both worlds. Please close Guantanamo, but please don't send them to Colorado. Um, <laughs> That's a hard position uh, to to navigate. I also, you know, think Republicans will challenge him generally on national security. Um, obviously, Glenn has a credential there in his service in the Navy. Um, you know, they'll go after him there. And, and you know, health care is the issue that will never die for Democrats. So um, you have to – you can challenge him there as well. And finally um, – you know, something that does appeal to Republican voters, and I'd say probably appeals to some independents in Colorado, is uh, Bennett's opposition to the Keystone Pipeline, something that Trump said that he would reverse Obama's decision on that if he is elected. So there are some things, but here, here's the challenge. Voters aren't going to know about any of this without money, mm. without the money to get the message out. We're going to talk a bit more about money coming up with a reporter who follows money in politics for us. But to wrap up, uh, Jennifer Duffy of The Cook Political Report, I want to get a reminder of what's at stake in this election. Could the Colorado race determine whether the Senate stays in Republican hands um, or whether Republicans have a supermajority to block priorities, even if Democrats hold on to the White House? Oh, there is no shot that Republicans will have a supermajority. There's no shot Democrats would have a supermajority. No, what is at stake in this election right now is that um, control of the Senate is in fact in play. Democrats need to gain four seats if they win the White House. They need five if they don't. Um, There are 10 Democratic-held seats up this time versus 24 Republican-held seats, which means that Republicans are playing defense. Um, There's a lot of demand for their resources from their own incumbents. Colorado was only one of two races that um, we considered potentially competitive on the Democratic side. Uh, The other one is an open seat in Nevada, which we have in our toss-up column, meaning that the race is too close to call. By taking um, Colorado sort of off the map, um, you know, Republicans are going to be focused almost entirely on keeping their own seats. Um, I think that it's too soon to say who's going to win the majority, but it's going to be a very close call. 
you know, Democrats are under the belief that Trump is so damaging to Republicans on the ticket that they can expand the playing field. You hear some Democrats talk about picking up eight to 10 seats. I think that that is fairly unrealistic at this point. But right now I have their gains somewhere from four to six. Jennifer Duffy writes about the Senate and gubernatorial races for the Cook Political Report's nonpartisan independent newsletter that analyzes elections and campaigns and political trends. Duffy has followed races in Colorado for almost three decades. Back in a moment on Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's talk now about money in Colorado's U.S. Senate race. As we've heard, there are questions about how Republican Daryl Glenn matches up in that regard against incumbent Democrat Michael Bennett. Reporter Sandra Fish is following the money in this race and in the presidential campaign. Let's not forget that in Colorado. Hi, Sandra. Great to talk with you again, Ryan. How much did Glenn raise and spend during the primary? Daryl Glenn raised the least of the five GOP candidates, less than $200,000 for the primary, and he was the only one who didn't air any of his own TV ads, though he did buy some radio spots. He spent just over $100,000 total on his campaign through June 8th. You know, beyond that, though, he did get a big boost from these conservative political action committees Jennifer Duffy mentioned to the tune of more than $600,000. About one-third of that went to TV ads on Glenn's behalf, mostly in the Colorado Springs market. The rest went to direct mail, some digital ads, and telemarketing. He did pick up those endorsements from conservative icons like Ted Cruz, Sarah Palin, and he reported raising more than $50,000 on his own after June 8th, including cash from some prominent conservative politicos. And Democratic incumbent Michael Bennett, as we mentioned, has built up quite a war chest. He has still has $5.7 million in the bank, having already spent $6.6 million on this race. Um, and his campaign aired nearly $1.6 million worth of ads during the last six weeks when the Republicans were on the air. He didn't even have an opponent. Right. So what's the next step for Daryl Glenn in terms of money and campaign ads? Huh. Well, Ryan, Daryl Glenn is in the big leagues now. And he'll likely need to raise some major league cash if he wants to compete. And by that, I mean millions. You know, he won this race in part by spending a lot of time in the last year traveling the state, introducing himself to Republicans. But now he's got to introduce himself to independent and even Democratic voters. TV ads are one way to do that. But he's got some catching up to do in terms of money and time. You know, Michael Bennett went on the air in April and now has advertising scheduled through Election Day. He's aired or reserved more than 15,000 spots at a cost of nearly $9 million. That's the equivalent of five straight days of Bennett ads. Five straight days. Uh, Seems like a lot for Glenn to catch up to. It is a lot, Ryan. But here's some context. Two years ago, Democratic incumbent Senator Mark Udall spent about $8.5 million on TV, though that doesn't include cable and satellite. His opponent, Cory Gardner, spent about $6.4 million on TV, and Gardner won. So will Glenn be able to raise enough money to compete with Bennett? Fundamental question there. You know, it's difficult to say. Gardner didn't face a primary, and he was able to hit the ground running after entering the race in late February. 
An outside group spent a lot of money on his behalf two years ago. But given his anemic fundraising so far, Glenn is really going to have to raise money on his own. And he'll need help, a lot of it, from outside groups to really challenge Michael Bennett. And we've heard a little bit about that from Jennifer Duffy, but to be more specific on outside groups. You know, going back to what happened in 2014, the biggest TV advertising spender in Colorado was Crossroads GPS, a Republican super PAC that spent nearly $11 million attacking Udall. That helped Gardner win. And there were a few other PACs that spent heavily on that Senate race, too. Will we see the outside groups uh, as heavily this year? It didn't sound, uh, according to Jennifer Duffy, that she thought so. I think we're going to have to wait and see. On Tuesday, the Senate Leadership Fund, a new conservative super PAC, announced a national $40 million ad campaign aimed at Senate races. Colorado, not on their list. Ah. But the group noted they may add other races. I think the first sign is if the National Republican Senatorial Committee starts to buy ad time in the next week or two. Um, Then we'll have to ask if groups like Crossroads GPS or Freedom Partners affiliated with the billionaire Koch brothers get involved. If those groups get involved, others follow. And on Bennett's side? You know, the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, they've already reserved $5 million of TV time for the fall to support Bennett. And there are probably other super PACs that could get involved for him, too. And why are those outside groups important in races like these? Ryan, when it comes to TV advertising, candidates typically air positive ads about themselves. That's what Michael Bennett's been doing. But it's the outside groups that run the negative ads, and researchers say that those ads have the biggest impact on voters. This primary is over, and so the ads are over maybe for a while. Do we get a respite? No, Ryan. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. Maybe TV viewers will be sorry, too. But here's the deal. It isn't just the U.S. Senate candidates who are trying to sway Coloradans. There's a presidential race. Colorado is one of the coveted swing states. And we haven't even talked about the biggest TV spender in Colorado so far this year. Who's that? It's Priorities USA Action, the super PAC supporting Democratic Party nominee Hillary Clinton. And that group started running ads at the beginning of this month. They have time reserved through Election Day. So far, they're planning to spend nearly $12 million on TV ads in this state. And meanwhile, Clinton, her campaign started airing ads in Colorado this month, and she has time scheduled through the end of July. She's only spent around $3 million, but she's just getting started. What about presumptive Republican nominee Donald Trump uh, on the on the GOP side? That's an interesting situation. He's paid for virtually no TV airtime in his campaign thus far. He's not on the air in Colorado, only in a few primary states. I asked um, Erica Franklin Fowler, who leads the Wesleyan Media Project and studies political advertising, about the fact that Trump has paid for virtually no TV airtime in his campaign thus far. She predicted he will begin buying at some point. Provided he brings in people who run campaigns more by the book, uh, I I wouldn't expect the advertising advantages to Clinton necessarily to stay. I mean, I do think there are large incentives uh, for him not to allow that to happen. Interesting. So we've got ads for the presidential and Senate races. What else? Well, 
more than $50 million worth of TV airtime is scheduled through November 8th. Um, U.S. Representative Mike Kaufman, who faces a challenge from former Senate, state Senate President Morgan Carroll in the 6th Congressional District. Kaufman has reserved more than a million dollars worth of airtime, and Democratic and Republican Party committees have reserved more than $10 million worth of airtime for congressional races. This seems early. Is it? it? It's, it is really early, Ryan, and but it's the new normal in Colorado. TV ad spending is breaking records this year, and according to the Wesleyan Media Project, and despite the move of younger people to digital media, Erica Franklin Fowler talked with me about what a hot market we have here. Denver is a battleground market. It's going to be hard to secure ad time there, and that is what is driving the really early ad re- reservations. Everyone knows if you want to be up on the air, you need to reserve early. So does that mean someone like Daryl Glenn gets shut out of primetime advertising? Not necessarily, but he needs to get people behind him. He needs to start raising more money for his campaign, and he needs to woo some of those outside groups and get start reserving that time. Thanks so much, Sandra, for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. Sandra Fish, a data journalist who specializes in money and politics. And the program continues after a break on CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Abusive relationships can start early. For Becca St. John, it happened in high school. Her boyfriend became violent. St. John chronicles how that changed her in a short film called Rock Bottom. She made it with the help of the Youth Documentary Academy in Colorado Springs. Rock Bottom screened this month at the Scout Film Festival for young filmmakers in Vermont. St. John Speaks now with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Becca, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's striking in the film how you become captive to your boyfriend's demands, and that's after having what seems like a really happy, independent childhood. You interviewed friends and family members who contrast your life with this man to your life before you dated him. Here's your sister, You were very bubbly and extroverted, and you loved to sing. You sang everywhere, you know, walking down the street. And you were just confident, and and you were just Becca. (laughs) I want to understand when all that started to change. How did the abusive relationship start? Um, Well, I had gotten back with the boyfriend in high school, um, and then really it was just kind of a slow decline. Um, As we dated longer, the control increased, um, and there were more rules put in place, and so I really started changing as that all happened, too. So it was kind of just a slow decline of everything happening. And you had dated him for a while in middle school and then dated him in high school. It seems like your family recognized there was a problem with this guy long before you did. Here's your cousin, Colin, describing how he tried to isolate you. I know he didn't like us talking, and that was a big reason why we didn't talk. And that bugged me quite a lot, because control is one of the first warning signs in an unhealthy relationship. He also tried to control what you wore. For example, he told you not to wear open-toed shoes. What were some other examples? Um, So no clothing that was tight whatsoever. Um, He wanted me to wear uh, sweatpants and baggy T-shirts. And then also not doing my hair at all uh, in a fancy way, just pulling it back in a ponytail or bun. And then also uh, no wearing any makeup at all. Um, And then 
contacts uh, in my phone. He would go through and delete anyone that he didn't want me to talk to or anything like that. So it was very controlling and there were a lot of rules. The relationship was violent sometimes as well. How was that? Um, so that... Um, that happened a little bit later in the relationship, and um, I touch briefly on that in the film just because um, it was definitely leading more violent, but it wasn't exactly as violent as most domestic violence uh, relationships can be. So um, there were times where he would push me against the wall and grab my wrists, but um, really it, it could have been a lot worse than it was. And your parents could see this change in you. During that time, uh, you became pretty distant. Um, you were never home. That was one big difference. You were just gone. It felt like there was a ghost in our house. Uh, we'd see you for five minutes, grab some stuff, and then go. Did your family warn you that something was very wrong with this relationship? Absolutely. Several times they always told me that they thought uh, something wasn't right and that maybe it was an unhealthy relationship and that I probably could do better and find someone who treated me like I should. But uh, I didn't exactly listen until the end of the relationship. It seems like all along you knew deep down something wasn't right. What kept you in the relationship? Um, honestly, I thought I was in love. Uh, so that kind of pulled me towards him. Um, and, you know, I had known him for a really long time. So we had a lot of history together. And part of me thought that there was nothing really else out there for me. I thought that he was it. What's the difference, if you thought of this, between being a kid in this situation and how it might be for an adult? Um, well, it is very different. Um, you know, as a as a younger person, um, not many people know that this is an issue. And it actually is incredibly huge issue in my age group and younger, too. Um, but, you know, as as either age, um, older or younger, I think it's just really hard to tell someone and to talk about it and to get it out there. So I think regardless of age, um, you know, it is just a really hard situation, but being younger, uh, not many more people realize that it's happening. Eventually, you got so depressed that your sister took you to a hospital for treatment, and you broke up with your boyfriend. Um, according to your friend Paige and others, things got better. I remember, like, the first time when I heard you sing again, I knew that gives back. I would like to think you missed your family. Because you came back to us and you seem pretty happy that you did. We sure are. In the film, you had lots of photos from the happy times in your life and then photos of the dark period. And you must have spent a lot of time going through these photos to make the film. Could you see the difference in your own body language or, or even the way you dressed or presented yourself? Absolutely. Uh, it's kind of good that I take way too many pictures of myself because then we really did have documentation of when I dolled myself up so much and then when it became like I looked so bad. <laughs> so it was really helpful to have all those pictures. At the end of the film, you end up falling in love with your friend Paige, uh, who was your childhood friend. Um, and how was that relationship 
different for you. I understand you're still with her. Yes, absolutely. Uh, So that relationship is just completely healthy and amazing. She is so supportive of me and she never, ever tells me like that I can't do anything. She always is just there to be my number one fan. And it's just really a give and take like it should be. And at the end of the film, um, you know, we realize this is so deeply personal. And why did you choose to interview your friends and family and have yourself play just a small speaking role on camera? Well, honestly, uh, my friends and family were the ones who could tell the story the best because they were the ones who were there going through it with me. And honestly, I wasn't really in a place to understand everything that was going on. So they were really the ones who kind of understood and pulled the whole thing together when really I only kind of had a narrow vision of what was happening. And how did making the film, in a sense, you must have relived the experience. How did that affect you? Yeah, every time I watch it, I relive the film and it gives me chills and butterflies at certain points. But um, it was sort of a healing process also. So, you know, it's kind of it gives me butterflies when I watch it. But at the same time, it's kind of like I've gotten this out there. Hopefully it's helping someone who sees it. And that just honestly makes me feel a lot better. And you now work uh, at the Youth Documentary Academy, the group that helped you make this film. And you help other young people, mostly high schoolers, tell their own personal stories. Um, Our staff has watched three of these films now. And we've been really impressed with how they deal with different, really difficult topics, race, PTSD. What's the most important thing to making a successful film about something so personal? Um, Well, the personal films come out the strongest because you're passionate about what you're making. You're passionate about what you're producing. So um, really with these films that these students make, it's just uh, super powerful because it's them telling their own stories or something that has affected them in their lives, which is uh, incredibly touching and way more impacting uh, than something they're not connected to. In the film, you chose not to name... um the man in the film. What made you decide that? Well, I wanted to respect him and his family um, because I don't want anyone going after him because I hope he has a wonderful life and his family too. And um, out of safety concerns too, I didn't want anyone trying to find him or hurt him at all just because I wanted to get the story out there, but it wasn't ever supposed to be um, a blaming or attacking sort of video. Have you had any contact with him? Um, He tried to contact me once through social media, but I never replied. Becca, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Rebecca St. John's film is called Rock Bottom. She spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. There is a link to the documentary and to the others we've talked about from this academy in Colorado Springs at cprnews.org. St. John lives in the Springs, and her film screened this month at the Scout Film Festival for Young Filmmakers in Stowe, Vermont. All right, finally today with 2016, about halfway through, our colleagues at CPR Open Air are looking back on their favorite new music releases of the year so far. Among their favorites is singer-songwriter Esme Patterson, a longtime Denver resident who's now based in Portland, Oregon. On her latest album, We Were Wild, Patterson stretches from her folk roots towards a more breezy pop rock sound. Here she is with one of the album's singles, No River. 
dulcet tones of Esme Patterson. The song is called We Were Wild. That's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner. You can follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters, on Facebook, CPR News, or comment at the bottom of specific articles at cprnews.org. It's nice to spend time with you. This is Colorado Public Radio.